go ahead and take our Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> We're moving through the seven seals being opened. Remember, uh, Jesus was the only one who prevailed to open the seals, who was found worthy to open the seals. So last week we saw the first four seals um, being opened, and in retrospect I wonder if I shouldn't have maybe tried to split that sermon up. I felt like I was trying to cram a lot of information into one sermon, but we got through the four horsemen, and we saw some of the application that had in history as well as some of the application it has uh, in our day as well. So now we come to the fifth seal that is being opened up, and once again this is a very familiar passage, I assume, to many of you of the martyrs at the uh, bottom of the altar who are crying out uh, to God for vengeance. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet. We'll read Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. And when he, remember who the he is, only the lamb, is able to break these seals and read the book. So when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sovereignty, holiness, and truthfulness, which oversees all of human history, which judges right judgment, and does everything you've promised to do. Even our sufferings and our very death is appointed by your gracious hand. We thank you for that comfort and we pray that you would help it to be real in our minds and in our hearts. That we would not be fretful, but that we would trust in a God who loves us and who is doing all things for our good and your own glory. Help me to exposit the text here before us this afternoon in a way that would glorify Jesus Christ as preeminent, uh, that would encourage the church, that would increase our faith, uh, that would be true and helpful. For Christ's sake we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. So Jesus is exercising his authority. Um, was the conclusion that I came to in, in trying to exegete these scriptures in the most consistent, faithful way I could. Jesus was found as the only one in all of human history who had the power, uh, the ability, the right, uh, and the claim to begin breaking these seals and looking at and reading the scroll. And so as I said, we saw last week that he began doing that with all of these preliminary judgments that were leading up to uh, the great tribulation, uh, the, the, the incredible uh, judgment of God poured out on both Israel and Rome 
uh, culminating in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But, but years leading up to that was all of the works of God in motion that was setting the stage for that to happen. And I told you last week, for those of you who are here, we read in Matthew, and, and I thought that this fifth seal of verses 9 through 11 was really helpful in setting the stage for us and helping us to piece together where this was happening uh, because the martyrs are told uh, that they still had a little while to go until their blood was avenged on the earth. And we read from the book of Matthew uh, where Jesus says very explicitly that all of the blood from Abel up to Zacharias was going to be required from that generation. And it was not because the sons of the fathers were going to be counted to the sons. It was because all of those martyrs culminated in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus told them in the parable. It, the reason they killed all the servants that the master sent was because they hated the master. And that was culminated in when they killed the son. And um, I want to look at it from a little bit of a different angle this week, though. Uh, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 11, a, par <coughs> a parallel passage to the passage we read last week in Matthew. This is the same story, uh, but it's, it's worded a little bit differently, and it's, it, the wording in Luke, I think, might give us a clue as to what's going on here. Once again, as you've probably noticed by now, I, I try not to be too dogmatic about things that I don't think the Bible just says in black and white, uh, but as I try to piece these things together, I, I do want to give you what I, I feel to be uh, the most consistent and helpful application of the text. So in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 through 51, Jesus says, Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. So he, remember what, he, what we read there in Matthew. He's saying, you're proving, even though you say, I wouldn't have killed the prophets if I was back then, you're proving that you would have by your actions even today toward their sepulchres. Verse 49, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, this is the wisdom of God speaking, this was God's plan, I will send them, and he mentions two groups of people, prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. I think the wording there in Luke is interesting because he narrows this group of martyrs for whom they will be held accountable to the prophets and the apostles. Uh, where in Matthew it's a much uh, more inclusive group that's mentioned of all the righteous blood which was slain. Uh, in Luke, Jesus specifically mentions it's the prophets and the apostles which he's talking about here. So this fifth seal being unsealed gives John a glimpse behind the events which are coming to pass. So we saw the events that were coming to pass last week, these four horsemen, the, the apocalypse of, of war and everything that surrounds it. But now the fifth seal shows us even behind that. Why is this coming? Why are the four horsemen coming against this land? 
And it's the reasoning for which this judgment is being passed. Give me a little bit of liberty here and don't take this illustration as a full-throated endorsement because it is not. But for those of you who saw the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you might remember the scene where all the Ents, the big talking, walking trees, they're walking toward Isengard, the place where the Dark Lord has its, his throne. And all the Ents are walking toward Isengard and Treebeard says the Ents are going to war. And then the camera zooms out and you see mile after square mile of burned and ravaged forest land. So we see the actions of the Ents are going to war and then we see why. Because of all this destruction that was given to their homeland. So that's kind of what's going on here. We see the four horsemen being unleashed. We see them being sent as judgment. And now we see why. Now the camera pans out as it were. And we get to see this fifth seal being unsealed. And the reasoning or the motivation behind why these four horsemen are being sent against uh, Rome and Israel. Particularly in history. So number one. We see that it's Jesus who opens the fifth seal. It's critical to remember that Jesus is the one opening every one of these seals. Remember the scene that John was weeping much because it seemed as if no one would be able to break these seals and open and read the book. And all of creation exploded in praise when it was found out that the lion of the tribe of Judah had prevailed to open the book. This tells us that there is no angel or man or act of nature that is opening these seals, but only the Lamb Himself. Jesus is the one who is furthering the story of history. And so when we see things going on, whether it's looking back in history or going on in our own day, when we see calamities, when we see judgments, when we see destruction, when we suffer personal persecution, we need to remember that it is under the leadership, ownership, and authority of the Lamb, who's furthering history for His own glory and the good of His people. This means that both the procession of activity bringing doom and judgment and the motivating factor behind that procession, these saints under the altar are under the control not of any dark spiritual principality or power, not under the control of any earthly principality or power, but are all ultimately under the control of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one furthering history. The second thing we see is the souls under the altar. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now what is the implication of these souls being under the altar? Uh, is it like there's some trap door that is opened up and there's people underneath, you know, the platform here? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about under the altar? Not at all. The indication of not only these souls being under the altar, but the, the picture is their blood being under the altar. The martyr, the blood of the martyrs being here under the altar is a clear reference to the burnt offering of the Old Testament. 
If you'll go back to Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 7, you'll see the way in which the burnt offerings were sacrificed by God's direction. The command for the priests in Leviticus 4.7, The priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So a Jew who read this and saw that it was the blood of the martyrs and, and by connection, by reference, the souls of the martyrs there at the bottom of the altar, their minds would have gone to the burnt offering of the Old Testament. The blood that would be shed and would be poured out under the altar. But what are the implications of that? What, is, what does this mean that these martyrs, the blood of these martyrs are there as a burnt offering in heaven before God? One reference from man's point of view is that the people who were supposed to be offering sacrifices as a burnt offering to appease God were the ones who were killing the prophets and apostles thinking that they were doing God a service. Remember in the book of John, Jesus told them, there will come a time when they who kill you think they do God a service. And that's what was going on in Israel. Remember, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, was going out with letters from the, the head Jews, from the Sanhedrin, from those who were the chief priests there in Israel, giving him authority to go kill and imprison and persecute Christians. These were the people who thought that by killing the prophets and apostles, they were doing God a service. They felt as though we're actually offering a burnt sacrifice to God. But from God's perspective, we see that the martyrdom of the prophets and the apostles, this, this martyrdom of God's saints here on earth, in some almost inexplicable way, is part of filling up the afflictions of Jesus Christ himself. This is said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And he's, he's saying, I'm rejoicing as Paul. I'm being persecuted and I'm, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for you. And fill up that which is behind or that which is lacking, that which hasn't happened yet. Fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So Paul understood that the sufferings, the afflictions of the apostles there in the first century was, was the, the finishing of Christ's sufferings for the church. Jesus tells us very explicitly that when the body is persecuted, when the church is persecuted, when his saints are persecuted, he feels it personally. He said it to the Apostle Paul. Paul, uh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul didn't persecute Jesus, but he persecuted the church. And Jesus said, you're persecuting me. What did Jesus say himself? Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And as much as ye have not done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have not done it unto me. 
So these martyrs and their blood there around the altar is, is, a, is a mystical, mysterious, eternal part of the wisdom of God of, of filling up the affliction of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, again, in, a, in um, collusion with the idea of a burnt offering, we see in Revelation chapter 13, or I'm sorry, in Hebrews chapter 13, that the fact that Jesus was crucified outside the city gates was supposed to point us to the burnt offering. In Hebrews chapter 13, in verses 11 through 13, we read, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, so remember that's what we read in Leviticus chapter 4, their blood is poured out there on the altar in the sanctuary, but their bodies are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So Jesus was a picture of the burnt offering by being, by being crucified outside the city gates. That was supposed to point us back to that burnt offering which was burnt outside the camp. And what is the conclusion of Paul in verse 13? Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. That's what these martyrs did. They bore the reproach of Jesus Christ. They, they gladly went to him outside of the camp, outside their comfort zone, outside of the culture and religion in which they had grown up, and instead, like Moses, counted the sufferings of Jesus to be worth more than all the riches and pleasures of this world. In the early church, martyrdom was seen as a special gift of the Holy Spirit. We heard about it in Sunday school this morning. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ and the greatest form of suffering for Him was being martyred. I find it very interesting that in modern charismatic circles where many will tell you they have the gift of healing or the gift of tongues or the gift of interpretation. I've never heard of one claiming the gift of martyrdom. Nobody told me they received that special gift from the Holy Spirit. Uh, but that was, that was seen as an incredibly special gift of the Holy Spirit that you would be counted worthy to be martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ, to share in His reproach in that way. It's as if your blood is mingled with His blood on the altar there. You are with Him. Uh, as a little bit of a side note from that whole picture of the burnt offering, this fact of the souls crying out uh, to Jesus from the altar is an indication that our souls go to heaven at our death and are cognizant of what is going on in heaven and on earth. That they are not in some state of soul sleep or spiritual disconnect. These martyrs show us that our souls are awake in heaven. They know that they have not yet received vengeance on the earth for their blood which was shed, which Jesus promised they would receive. And so they ask him, how long? When is that going to happen, Lord? It hasn't happened yet. So the next point we come to is the reason for which they were slain. These are not merely people who were martyred for their sincerity. There are Muslim martyrs. There are Roman Catholic martyrs, there are Mormon martyrs, 
Every faith has its martyrs. Being martyred merely because you're sincere in your faith is not enough. The reason Jesus tells us that they were slain was for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This is what qualifies a martyr in the Christian biblical sense. Now this brings us to the clue that I cued you in on in the introduction. They were slain for the word of God. Now, this is a theory on my part. Again, I'm not going to be too dogmatic on it. But it's very interesting to me that in Luke, the two groups of people that Jesus mentions as their blood coming upon that generation is the prophets and the apostles, or the two groups of people in the Old and the New Testament by which God revealed the Scriptures to man. Particularly those two groups that Jesus used, or that God used for the penning of the Word of God. Maybe what is being referenced here, that the number of those who should be killed as they were would be fulfilled. It may be that the last of the apostles had not yet been martyred yet. I tried to find dating on when the apostles were martyred. All the apostles were martyred except for the Apostle John, from what we understand in history. And the latest dating that I could find on any of them was about 66 AD. Now there's some of them that I couldn't find any dating on, so if you know some history that I couldn't find there, I'd be very interested to see that. Uh, but if we take Luke chapter 11 and, and Jesus saying the, the blood of the prophets and the apostles will be required at this generation, and we tie it in here with Revelation chapter 6 where he says that the rest of your number, the rest of their fellow servants and brethren should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. It may be that this is not speaking of every Christian martyr in history, but this specific group of those who are killed specifically for the word of God. Because they were faithful to relay the word of God as the Holy Spirit impressed upon them. Holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit is the way we receive the scriptures. Perhaps this group being spoken of here is exclusive to that group. Those who were killed specifically because they insisted on being the faithful mouthpieces of God to man. Slain for the word of God. But it wasn't merely for the word of God, but also for their testimony which they held. It was not only their loyalty to faithfully transfer the words of God, but it was their personal commitment to be obedient to it with their own lives. Now we know there's never been a man outside of Jesus Christ who has perfectly been obedient to the commands of God. But these men, again, as we heard in this morning's message, were changed men. They were men who strove to be faithful, to be obedient to the Word of God. When they failed and they were reproved, remember when uh, Peter was carried away with the dissimulation and Paul had to reprove him, what happened? He repented. He turned again and was obedient to the Word of God. When the Word of God was put in front of him and it says, listen, here's what the Word of God says and you're not being obedient to it. These men, their testimony was such that they said, you're right, we're committed to being obedient to the Word that we're giving to you. And they turned and they were obedient. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith that talks about those who were killed 
for the testimony which they held, particularly verses 36 through 39. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They were killed because of their testimony. The testimony which they held of being faithful to personally obey the word of God. The fourth thing we see is that they cried with a loud voice. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? If the idea of them being under the altar draws your mind back to the burnt offering in the Old Testament, this idea of their blood crying out for vengeance ought to also draw your mind back to an Old Testament story of Cain killing Abel. Now Abel is specifically mentioned in Matthew and Luke as from Abel to Zechariah, the blood of all those who have been killed for righteousness' sake will be required of this generation. And certainly this word picture should also draw our mind back to Abel's slaying by his brother. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10, when Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? How am I supposed to know where he is? God said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. The blood of the righteous martyrs loudly cries out to God for vengeance. God tells us that we are not to avenge ourselves. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what are these martyrs doing? What is the blood from righteous Abel up through the apostles? What is it saying? We left this in your hands, God. We didn't take vengeance ourselves. In fact, the cry on earth of Jesus Christ himself and martyr the first and Stephen, the first martyr of Jesus Christ was lay not this sin to their charge. I mean, what an incredible cry of, of mercy and love for their enemies, of blessing when they were receiving cursings and persecution. They were obedient to what God told them to do. We're not taking this upon ourselves. But what does their blood cry to God? Was that just? Was that right that they killed your servants? For the sake of your word and for their testimony which they held, will you not do what you promised to do? It's a loud cry. It's a cry that echoes across the courts of heaven. And Jesus Christ is not deaf to it. He hears it. He hears the cry and he responds to the cry. He will do what he promised to do. And we'll get to that here in a moment. These martyrs appeal to Jesus Christ on three grounds for their vengeance. The first is they call him Lord. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? They're appealing to his ability 
to execute judgment. You're the Lord. You're the sovereign. You're the king. You're the one who has all control. If vengeance has not been executed, it is not because you are not able. You're the only one who's prevailed to break the seals and to open the book. Judgment can be executed upon them. We know this because you're the Lord. The second appeal is that he is holy. How long, O Lord, holy? His holiness means that he has the motivation to execute justice upon the earth. His holiness will not stand for injustice to eternally stand unopposed. Just the opposite, the justice of God, of the, the triune God, will be satisfied in every case. There is no injustice that has ever happened on the face of the earth which will be allowed to stand unquestioned for all eternity. Justice will either be met at the cross of Jesus Christ or in the flames of hell. There will be justice. And so the saints of God, these martyrs, they appeal to His holiness. You're holy. You're good. You're right. You're just. And thirdly, they appeal to His verity, His truth. How long, O Lord, holy and true? We read in Matthew and we read in Luke that the blood of all the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah will be required of this generation. And the martyrs say to Jesus Christ, you're true. God is true and every man's a liar. When will you do what you promise to do? It's not a matter of will you do what you promise to do, but when will you do it? How long will it be until you do it? Because you're true. Your words will always come to pass. So these martyrs appeal to Jesus Christ on his ability, his motivation, and his obligation. His lordship, his holiness, and his truth. And then they ask him two aspects about, their, about his response to their death. They want him to judge and they want him to avenge. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now this is, in one sense, two ways of saying the same thing. But in another sense, it's, it's two sides of one coin. It's, it's step A and step B. Before a sentence can be executed, a sentence has to be passed. There has to be a legal declaration from the judge. Here is the evidence. The judge finds this party guilty. Here is the penalty that must be paid. That's the judgment of God. So how long, O Lord, until you judge? How long until the bar of heaven receives the evidence and the witnesses of this blood that has been shed and a judgment is passed against them? For Abel, it had been nearly 4,000 years since his blood was shed. For the apostles, as far as we understand time and space, it had been a much shorter period of time, but there had not yet been a legal judgment made. Jesus had said it was going to happen. The Old Testament is replete with the fact of God's justice and holiness, but on this particular count, the courts of heaven need to judge. And so their cry is for that declaration to be made formally in the courts of heaven.
And then for that sentence to be executed. Will you avenge? Will you execute the sentence which you have judged? The obvious result of such a a judgment would be that the sentence would be carried out speedily. God has made it clear in His Word. I'll give you a couple of verses, but these just say it explicitly. And there's this principle is all throughout the Scriptures. The Scriptures are clear that God's standard of judgment is such that once a judgment has been made, the sentence should be speedily executed and not delayed. We see this in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 26. And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Whatever the judge says, let it be speedily executed. And Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So the justice of God is such that once a legal judgment has been rendered, the execution of that judgment must be speedy. And so they ask, when will you judge and when will you avenge? And Jesus answers them to that extent, that they should rest yet for a little season. It will be a swift judgment and vengeance upon them. As I said, this teaches us that when we pray imprecatory prayers to God, for God to execute full justice on the earth, that frees us up to do the duty which He has commanded of us, which is to return good for evil, which is to bless those who curse us, which is to do good to those who despitefully use us. The two truths are not at tension with one another, but work in concert. Because God will perfectly judge and execute judgment. We don't have to. We can leave that in His hands. And then the last part of their cry is that when is it that you will judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? These martyrs expected their imminent vengeance to be executed on those who dwell on the earth. They were not expecting their judgment, their vengeance, to merely be a spiritual judgment in eternity, but to be an imminent judgment in space and time upon those who are dwelling on the earth. Again, I think this so clearly is in reference to what Jesus said. That the blood of the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah would be required of that generation. And the martyrs under the altar are asking Jesus, when is that going to happen? How much longer until you do what you said you would do? Jesus' response to them is that of a kind, loving sovereign. He gives white robes unto every one of them. Now the white robe pictures many different things, but two of the most prominent is that of victory and purity. Here are the saints of God made perfect. As they're there in heaven around the throne, they no longer are dealing with the temptation. They faced their martyrdom with full faith. They were faithful unto the end. They fought a good fight. They kept the faith. 
And so now they've received this white robe of purity. They no longer have to worry with the sins. They no longer have to worry about the temptation and making sure they take the way of escape that God provides for them. But this is also the white robe of victory. They've overcome. They were faithful unto the end. They kept the words of Jesus. They overcame all of those temptations which Jesus laid out so clearly in the seven epistles to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They were overcomers in every way. And so Jesus is telling them, vengeance is about to come, but you've already won. You're here with me. You're purified. You're the victors. Don't be anxious for when justice is going to happen. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. What a beautiful reminder that once we have fought the good fight, once we have finished our course, having kept the faith, there is an eternal Sabbath rest which we will enter into. They were awake in heaven, they were aware of what was going on in heaven and in earth, and yet they were in a state of perfect rest. The position that Jesus describes them as is that they were resting and they could rest yet for a little season longer. You can continue. You've entered into your, as we say, eternal rest. You've put your burden down. You've labored for as long as you have to. You now can continue to rest. For this length of time. Until, yet yeah, a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren. That should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Once again, if you take this to be that particular subcategory of the prophets and apostles, that fits very well with this description here, that it was their fellow servants, those who had the same job that they had, those who were called to the same type of ministry that they were called to, to serve God and the Lord Jesus and the church in this particular way, to be the mouthpieces for the canon of Scripture to be delivered, and also their brethren, that we're particularly talking about those who were killed by Israel, by the apostatizing people who were once God's people, and particularly their brethren as the apostles would have been. And, and we know Paul's cry, is, his heart's desire for Israel is that they would be saved. His brethren according to the flesh, he calls them. But what is it that these, the last of these needs to happen? That they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. What does that mean? That means Jesus knew who was going to be martyred yet on the earth, how it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, it was under His Lordship. If martyrdom is, as the Scriptures seem to describe it, a blessed gift of the Holy Spirit, this special reward reserved for those whom God has called to that particular ministry, that takes away our fear and worry. Apparently, those who were to be killed as their brethren were, when that number was going to be filled up, it's like there was a quota. Jesus knew who it was going to be and when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. <coughs> and those who were yet to be killed on the earth loved not their lives unto death. 
They didn't view this world and the things of this world as their prize. Their goal was not, how long a life can I live? Their goal was not, how can I stretch out my earthly loves and relationships for as long as possible? Their goal was not, how can I amass the most amount of goods here on this earth while I'm here? Their goal was, how can I please Jesus Christ and be conformed more to His image? And when they looked at it that way and they were counted worthy to be a martyr with Jesus Christ, they saw that as a blessed position. So when Jesus says that their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled, that's not some callous statement. It's not some harsh statement. Well, once the rest of your brothers get killed, then, then I'll... No, he's saying that there's, there's a few more I'm going to give this gift to. There's a few more that are going to get to suffer like I suffered. Uh, there, there's one who's going to refuse to be crucified as I was crucified. And he's going to be crucified upside down. There's one who's going to be beheaded for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there's one who's going to be flayed for the sake of the gospel. And I'm going to let them get that before this vengeance is brought about. That's part of my plan for them and for my church to fill up my sufferings for the sake of the body, which is the church. So the conclusion of this fifth seal of these martyrs at the base of the altar crying out for vengeance, the takeaways we should take away from this is that Jesus is Lord, holy, and true. He's the sovereign over all, His justice is perfect, and everything He has said will come to pass. We should take away that there's no suffering which we endure for His sake that He does not feel with us and promise to avenge. There's nothing that we can endure on this earth that will not be receive perfect retribution in this world and the world to come, and which Jesus is not suffering with us in. I think of just a couple of years ago, uh, those several uh, pastors in Canada who went to jail because they refused to close the doors of their churches and stop <coughs> preaching the gospel. They received a special blessing of knowing what it is in this place and time in history to suffer with the Lord Jesus for His sake in that particular way. And so when you and I suffer in whatever way it is, it's, it's, it's unlikely looking at the tapestry of history, it's unlikely that the majority of the people in here are going to be martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's probably not going to happen. But the scorn that you receive from a friend or co-worker, the isolation you may receive from a family member, the scoffs that you receive from the world, what you miss out on in a job promotion for the sake of being faithful to the gospel, all of these things are part and parcel in some little ways of you suffering with Jesus Christ. And He's not deaf to that. He sees it. He feels it. And it's a gift from Him to you to be partaker in His sufferings. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this glimpse into heaven. Uh, this, this beauty of these martyrs who were killed for the sake of the Word of God. 
and the testimony which they held. Let this faith, faith of our fathers be an impetus to drive us forward, that we too would be true to death. How sweet would be their children's fate if they, like them, could die for thee. So help us to have that mind, that mind that loves not the world, neither the things of the world, uh, but that desires more than anything to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask all this for his sake. Amen. God bless you.